Well, uh, I, I just, man, I have one of those messages that, that like is not emotionally powerful. Um, it's from the Word of God, but it's not, it's not emotionally powerful, but, uh, and sometimes that doesn't connect, I know, as well, and, and so, but I, I just think God, uh, I think God's moving in our midst this morning, and I think God has something He wants to do in you, and so I'm gonna, I'm going to pray again. Lord, uh, just pray that you would move in the hearts of every every person here, God. And some people here, God, they, they may need you as their Savior, and, and I pray you bring them to that place. And for some of us, God, here we're Christians and we're serving you, Lord, and I just pray that you would move us forward. And I just, I just pray everybody here, Lord, uh, would, would hear from you in the way that they need to hear from you through through my message and through your word this morning. have a sense from conversations this week that... There's a lot of people in our church who need encouragement this morning, God, and we're talking about food, and I pray that you put those two things together and, and bring the encouragement uh, and, and the joy, Lord, that, that I know you can bring into the lives of, of every person that, that needs that this morning. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, I came across a verse this week, and it's, it's really funny that, that I didn't come across this verse sooner. I, I kind of feel like a failure in my study efforts because it's like the gluttony verse and 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 so here here's the thing is is this verse is like a summary of everything I said and I didn't even know it was in the Bible which was good it was confirming for me uh but it was a little shocking that that I I didn't I didn't know it before and I've read the verse but never in the context of gluttony and 1 Corinthians 10:31 it's probably the most important verse about gluttony and we haven't even said it yet here it is, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Let me read it to you one more time. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It's interesting because it fits right with the definition of gluttony that I've given. And that's that we need to if we're not going to be gluttons, take seriously the food that we eat in regards to our relationship with God. And if we eat and we never think about God's role in, in the eating and, and the food that we, that we intake, then, then we are gluttonous people no matter how healthy or how well we think we eat. And so we've talked about that over the last couple of weeks and it's been interesting to hear the response in our church because, and this is just crazy to me, it has been, bar none, the most talked about sermon series that I've ever done as the pastor of Creekside. Everybody seems to want to talk to me about it. Some people I could tell uh, are scared to tell me what they eat. Uh, I'm like, where are you going for lunch? And it's like this sheepish thing, like, oh no, he's going to judge me. And that's not the case. But there's just been tons of conversation uh, about this topic. And, and this verse really sums it up because we've been talking about Eating for God, and, and people have been wondering what that means, and we'll turn our attention more to that this morning. But, but it's so easy to say, I'm going to live for God in every area of my life. But at the same time go, God doesn't really care about what I eat, or you know, God's not going to really get upset or be wronged in any way if, if I have this candy bar this afternoon, or whatever it might be. It's really easy to dismiss those things, but I find it so interesting that Paul says, hey, in the book of 1 Corinthians, whatever you do, including eating and drinking, do it all for the glory of God. Paul is saying, look, when you eat, when you drink, you need to take seriously, in those moments, your relationship with God. And here, here's the question that I keep getting. 
as we've gone through this. I keep getting this question. Okay, that's great. I want to live for God when I eat. But what does it mean to do that? And I have these really long discussions about that. And, and here's the problem with this whole sermon series. Let me give you the problem in preaching it and receiving it. There is no way, and I keep repeating this, but there is no way that I can stand in front of you and say this is exactly what you need to eat in order to not be a glutton. Because... Like other things in life, this is a personal issue that we have to, to talk to God about and figure out what He wants us to eat. Let me give you an example. I have MS, as some of you know. At least the doctors tell me that I have MS. I don't believe them, but whatever. And, and so to, to combat the symptoms that I had four years ago, I stopped eating gluten. Totally cut it out of my diet, right? And I know that for me, it would be dishonoring to God to have a bowl of Wheaties for breakfast in the morning because I I would get tingly and I wouldn't be able to work and I'd probably be dizzy and I wouldn't be up here this morning. And so I know that, that for me it would be wrong if I'm really considering God to have a bowl of Wheaties. But for some of you, Wheaties might be the breakfast of champions. And God would say, hey, I want you to eat this so that you can have the energy that you need to serve me today. And so it would never be right for me to go, you know what? Wheaties is, is bad for me, and so let me preach a sermon about how you should never have gluten again, and, and your life would be better, and you'd be a more spiritual person. I can't do that. And it's like that with just about everything. And so people want me, I know you do, you want me to be like, hey, it's wrong for you to eat unhealthy. Or you want me to be like, hey, it's wrong for, for you to eat too much. I know that there's something in you that just wants me to be specific like that, but I believe that it is highly possible that God would tell some of you to eat organic and local so that you can support the economy and so that you can be healthy and serve Him in greater ways while telling others of you to eat non-organic store brand food so that you can save money and put it towards ministry or whatever it might be for the glory of God. And you say, well, how can both of those be true? I don't know. I'm not God, but I believe that they both can be true. But the key is that we need to consider God when we make food choices. Now, here, here's the good news. Well, while I can't give you a specific diet, there are some things in the Bible that are specific. And I want to look at those, those things today, three of them specifically. And before I begin that, a couple of things that you need to know. First of all, it, this will all come from the New Testament today. And that is intentional on my part. You can go to the Old Testament and you can see a ton of dietary restrictions. If you just flip your Bible open to the Old Testament, you can read about how you shouldn't eat pig, and you, you shouldn't boil a, a chicken in its mother's milk, and uh, you can read about what kinds of animals that they couldn't eat and shouldn't eat and all of those things. But, but here's the reason that, that I'm not turning my attention there. Well, there might be some great principles. I don't know how healthy pigs are for you, for example. There might be some great principles. But the Old Testament was written to be a law for the Jewish people. And that law was specific for them, and it was healthy for them, and it was right for them, and it was what God wanted from them. But if we are not Jewish, then that law does not apply to our lives. And you say, well, what about the Ten Commandments? Well, all the Ten Commandments except for the Sabbath are repeated in the New Testament. So we have to follow those laws as Christians. But when you look at these specific dietary restrictions, they're next to things like don't wear two types of fabric in your clothing. And don't shave your beard. And so for us to go, well, 
oh man, the Old Testament says all these things about food and I better start following them. That would be wrong. That was the law that God gave the Jewish people to govern the nation of Israel. We have our own laws in our country and we don't expect other people in other countries to follow those laws. And we even have certain laws in our state that don't need to be, uh, uh, that aren't applied in other states. For example, I saw a speed limit sign from Texas yesterday that said 85. If you go 85 down our road, you get in trouble. But in Texas, apparently, that is okay. And so, so here's the thing. You don't, you can go to the Old Testament. You can find some great principles there. But, You don't need to look at the Old Testament and go, wow, I can't eat pork anymore because that's what God said. God said that to the nation of Israel and it was right for them. Now here's the other thing. I'm going to give you these these teachings on on what God thinks about food. And, And it's easy as people and as Christians even, to go, okay, what's the minimum that I have to do in order to to not be a glutton or to not be sinful or whatever it might be. And, And what you're going to want to do, this is your warning, is you're going to want to go, oh, I can follow those three things so I don't have to think about God when I make daily food choices. I can throw out our first two weeks of study about how in everything that we eat we need to consider God. I can throw all that out because now we have found some principles that I can just grab a hold of and say that's the bare minimum, no big deal. But that would be wrong. I believe wholeheartedly that you can follow these three principles and still be a person who is a glutton that is not considering what God would have for your life when you make decisions about your food. And so don't look at these as the end. This is it. Got it. I know what to do now. But instead, look at this as some foundational principles that show us what the heart of God is about food and about our eating decisions. Okay, and so the first one's going to come to us from 1 Corinthians Chapter 8, and if you want to open up there, uh, that would be great. It will come up above my head here. Now, about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Now, Paul begins with a warning, really. He's looking at this group of Christians, a church in Corinth, and he's saying, look, you think you know some things because you've become a Christian, and and that is true. But he says, here's really the key of it. Even though you know some things, knowledge is not a good thing unless that knowledge is coupled with love and unless you are loved by God, which produces love for other people. And so everything that he's about to say is, is really kind of uh, foundation. The foundation of that is the fact that, that we can possess knowledge And it's not a good thing if we don't add to that knowledge love. Okay, now, it's connected to food, right? And it just seems like something, how can that be connected to food? But listen to what Paul says next in verse 4. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods with a lowercase g and many lords with a lowercase l, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. There's a pretty, pretty simple thing that Paul is saying. He's saying just because somebody burns down some metal, melts it, and builds it into the shape of something and calls it a god, it doesn't change the fact that it's still simply a piece of metal. 
It doesn't matter if somebody calls something a God. We know that there is only one true, real God who gave his life to save us. Now, some of you may disagree with that. If you're not Christians, you may go, well, I don't believe that. I think that there's other gods. And that's fine. But I know, and I would be lying if I said any different, that there is only one God that, that exists on this planet. And so no matter what people call gods... Paul is saying, it doesn't make them any more gods. If I picked up this microphone stand and said, hey, I want you all to worship this, this is a god, that would not make it any more a god than it was before or wasn't before, I should say. And so Paul is making that clear. And then in verse 7, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. This is key. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, then they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Now here's what he's saying. He's saying, there are people in your midst, and this is in a church, speaking to Christians, who still believe that those false gods are actually gods in some way. Now, you go, whoa, you can believe in other gods, and and it would be easy to judge these people, but but you have to think of the life that they came out of. They come out of a a life, these people in the city of Corinth, where you go around and and you sacrifice to metal gods, and you believe in them. And so these people grew up their whole lives going to temple worship for these false gods. And so when they become Christians, they begin to understand that the the real God is the most powerful God, but there's something in them, probably not even logically, but something in them in the way they feel that says, yeah, those things are kind of real gods. And if food has been sacrificed to them, and I eat it, then it's some way... I'm worshiping those things like I used to. So Paul sets up kind of two two things here. He says, look, we know that they're not gods. So it doesn't matter what sacrifice to them because they're nothing at all. They're just pieces of metal. But some people in your midst, they don't recognize that. And they think that when something is sacrificed to them, that it's this spiritual experience. And for them, if they eat it, then they are being disobedient to what they think that God wants them to do. And therefore, their conscience is defiled. They feel guilty. And they think that they have wronged God. And because they think that, they probably have. And so Paul says, look, we know that it's not true. We have this knowledge that that a God that's fake is not a God at all. It's nothing. But some people don't. And for them... To eat the food that has been sacrificed to that false god is sinful because they believe it to be wrong and they are doing something that they believe God would not want them to do. And we skip to verse 8. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat it and no better if we do. So Paul wants to make clear something before he makes this next statement. And something that I've been trying to make clear is the same thing. If we start to regulate what is right and wrong for everybody to eat, then we are doing something wrong. It's really interesting how often in the New Testament this topic comes up. There is no food that is wrong for you to eat or right for you to eat in and of itself. And you think, that can't be a, a common theme throughout the Bible. I mean, what? why would that come up over and over? And, and here's the reason. Because the people that Paul writes his books to, they are being taught by a group of people called the Judaizers that they need to follow all the laws of the Old Testament in order to be saved and someday get into heaven. And so when Paul writes his books in the New Testament, what he is saying is, look, you don't need to worry about 
following those laws in the Old Testament because you were saved through faith alone. And so when Paul makes statements like this, he's saying it because he doesn't want people to go, oh man, if I don't eat in a certain way, then I'm not going to get into heaven. If I eat this, this, and this, then God's not going to love me anymore. If I do that, that, and that, then God might kick me out of his kingdom. And so every time Paul talks about food, it seems like, he feels the need to clarify one more time that this isn't about law that says you must eat this or you must not eat this. It's about something that comes from the heart. And and here it is in verse 9. Be careful, however... That the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. The weak being the person who believes that false gods are real gods. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, understanding that they're not real gods, eating in an idol's temple, won't, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their conscience, you sin against Christ. Wow. Paul says, if there are people in your midst that see you going in and eating food, sacrificed to idols, and they believe that to be wrong, and you cause them because you're doing it, then they look up to you and they say, well, if they're doing it, then I can do it. No big deal. I mean, that guy's doing it and he's a solid Christian, so I can do it. But I think it's wrong, but I'll do it anyway. And they do something that they don't believe God should do. Then you are sinning against them. And further, you are sinning against Christ. Paul makes this statement in verse 13, and it's really just a powerful Emphasis on what he's just said. Verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Now here is one of the key principles that we see about food and and what God thinks about food in, in the New Testament. And that's this. If what you eat is going to cause somebody else to sin, Even if that thing is not really a sin, just somebody else believes it to be a sin, then you should not do it. Then you should not eat it. Now, the the clearest and easiest example of this, and the one that always gets used, is is alcohol. Now, and the Bible does not say that drinking alcohol is wrong in any way. Let me just tell you that. However, if you have a friend who thinks that alcohol is wrong, and they come into your home, and you sit there, and you have a glass of, of wine with them, and then they drink it, because they are going, well, he's doing it, but I feel like it's wrong, but he's doing it, and I look up to him, and he's a Christian too, and they drink it thinking that it's wrong, then you have caused them to sin, and therefore you have sinned, because you are not eating in the way that God wants you to eat. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, it seems so relative. But God is looking at us, I believe, and not saying, look, you need to try to figure out the right laws about this, but you need to have a heart that says if what I choose to eat causes somebody else to be living in sin because they might eat it too and they think it's wrong, then I need to avoid that food. Now, considering we're talking about gluttony, I think that alcohol is not the only good example. I think there's other great examples. 
And as we, as we sit around and we think about and pray about, God, how is it that you would want me to eat? Hopefully God is saying some things to you. For me, I've told you this uh, for the last two weeks now, but God has said to me, hey, I want you to eat so that you can have energy to serve me, or I want you to eat to celebrate the work that I have done in your life. And those are the two reasons that God has given me personally to eat the food that I eat. And and if it doesn't fit into those categories, I don't think that God wants me to eat it. And, and so here's the deal. For me, those things have become wrong. Now, they're not sinful in and of themselves. If I eat outside of those things, it's not like there's a verse in the Bible that says, oh, Chad, you did something wrong. But I believe that's what God wants for me. And so if you are a person who's calling me up and trying to get me to go out to fast food with you all the time and trying to take me out to get a milkshake just so that we can hang out, then you are sinning against me. See that? And I believe the same would be true if I was trying or causing you to eat in a way that you didn't think God wanted you to eat. Another example maybe is, is spending, and, and we're going to move to this in a second, but, it, but if you were just convicted, I need to spend less money on food and, and I, need to, I need to be careful about what I eat because I think God wants me to put this money in other places, and yet I was a person who, who was just bragging to you about the nice meals that I had, then I think that would be wrong. Now at the very heart of this, and, the, and this is the heart, is that, that Paul, God through Paul is saying to you and I, that we need to be people who care desperately about the lives, the spiritual lives of, of other Christians. So much so, in the words of Paul, that if what we eat even causes them to sin, then we're never, ever going to eat that thing again. And I think the problem in our world, I think you go, well, man, alcohol is a good one, and, and I'm never calling you to have food with you again. And, uh, and, but other than that, I mean, I don't know what you're talking about here. And, and probably that's because, if I could just say it bluntly and honestly, we don't really care that much about other people's spiritual lives. I'm not just talking about our church. I think our church is better than most in the American church. But, but just the church in general today in our country, we don't care about the other person's spiritual life. Oftentimes we don't even care about our own spiritual life. But even those of us who care about us and we're trying to live for God, how often do we really, really deeply inside of us go, man, I wonder how that person's doing spiritually. Or I wonder what they're struggling with. Or what can I do to help that person grow in their relationship with God? Paul says part of that is the food that we eat, but I think Paul just had such a heart to see people live in the way that God wanted them to live that he even examined the food that he was eating. And he said, look, I won't eat meat ever again if it causes you to not live the life that God wants you to live. And so this is twofold here. On one level, it's like, hey, you need to examine the food that you eat and and you need to strive to not eat any food uh, that's going to cause somebody else to sin because they think that food is wrong. But on a whole other level, we need to look at this passage and ask ourselves a simple question. Do I really care about the spiritual life of other Christians? I mean, do you really care even about the people sitting in the room right now and about how they are living for God? If the answer is no, then you need to to repent. I mean, the whole concept of Christianity has always been meant to be corporate. And I'm proud of our church and the way that we approach things, but I still don't think we're good enough. I think we're better than most American churches. But, but, but 
that's not very good really. And we need to be people that recognize that the Word of God is made clear, that it's all about us building each other up. And part of that is the food that we take in. First Timothy 4, 1 through 5, switching gears. It says, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose conscience have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And so you go, okay, this is good. This is nice, right? I mean, Paul's mad because there's people out there saying that certain people can't eat certain foods. This is another one of those warnings where Paul says, look, there's no food that's been created that's not inherently bad for you to eat. But then listen to these words. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. I just want you to think about this here. Paul is saying that we can eat whatever we want as long as we give thanks when we eat that thing. And notice the why, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. And here's the thing. When you think about the food that you take in, I believe that if you're being serious, there are certain things that you probably ate this week that you would not have been able to thank God for. I think that, it, and this is, this is not wrong in and of itself, but if you stop simply to grab a snack for no reason other than it tastes good at McDonald's and you got a dollar thirty-nine hot fudge sundae and that just because it sounded good or whatever, and you just stopped and you ate that thing and you didn't even think about God at all, well, here's the deal. I don't know that you can thank God for that because I'm not sure God provided it for you or if you just went out and got it. But if you stop and you go, okay... It's consecrated by the Word of God. And so it fits within the principles that we're bringing forth today. And it's consecrated through prayer. So I've talked to God about this. And I've considered what God wants in this. Then I believe, Paul is saying, then you can say, God, okay, nothing is inherently wrong for me to eat. And so I genuinely am thanking you for this food that I am eating. If you have not considered it through the Word of God and through your prayer, what you are eating, but you are just eating then you can't really give thanks to God. Now, you might rationalize. You might go, Dear Jesus, thank you for this food. Amen. Oh, I can eat it now, right? But that's not at the heart of what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, if it has been consecrated by the Word of God in prayer, you have really considered this through God. If you have taken seriously the food you eat in, re- in regards to your relationship with God, then you can eat whatever you want as long as it is done with thanksgiving. Maybe just a crazier example will will help you understand this. If I I went over to Fred Meyer right now and I stole food and I came over here and said, Hey, Jesus, thank you for this food. I don't think it fits within the scope of what Paul's saying here, right? I, I think instead we need to recognize that we can only give thanks if we are eating within the will of God. Otherwise, God has not given us that food. It's something that we have taken without permission. Now, here here's the other side of this. I really believe that if we were people that gave thanks, really gave thanks, not just said a prayer before we eat, you may not even like bow your head, but if you really said thank you to God when you ate, 
then you would move forward in your spiritual life. I really believe this. That if you really said, look, God, you've provided this for me and you've given this to me and you've shown me some things about what I should eat and what I shouldn't eat and I am genuinely thankful for this meal that I'm about to eat, I believe that it would draw our attention back to God and we would think about God more and we would become stronger Christians simply because we're changing the way in which we eat. But it's hard, right? I mean, I could go over there to Fred Meyer right now and buy food. Now, I, I don't have enough money uh, to eat whatever I want as far as going to any restaurant or anything like that. But if I could just be honest with you, virtually my whole life I've, to a degree, eaten whatever I want. Most of you probably in some way have done the same thing. I mean, you can't go to the fanciest restaurant maybe. But come on, let's be honest. We can eat whatever we want. And there is really, if, if we could just say it how it is, an unlimited food supply in our country. And I think that because of that, we run into a problem. We don't wake up in the morning and say, God, please prepare for me today the food that I need. God, I need you to lead me to my meals because I don't know where my next meal is coming from. And I believe, and I, I really and actually believe this, that part of the reason you see the American Christian culture the way it is today where we don't think about God much is because we don't have to wake up and say, God, please give me food. And so here, here's the trick. You live in America, right? And you can go to the grocery store anytime you want. But, but here's my encouragement for you. Instead of saying, what am I going to buy today? Say, God, what are you going to provide today? And then when you buy that food, you recognize in your deepest heart, in your soul, you recognize, God, without you, I would not have this. Last week we studied God giving manna and quail to the Israelites as they were in the desert wandering and God provided food for them every single day in a miraculous way. And I think that it's very important for every Christian in this country to recognize that every time they go to the grocery store, that's a miracle. When you look around the rest of the world and the struggles with food they have, and you look at the, at the story of the Garden of Eden when sin came into the world, and, and God said, look, now you're going to have to work hard for your food, and then you think about how easy it is for you to get food, it's a miracle. And so this is my encouragement for you. When you go to the grocery store and when you eat your food, don't go, yep, I did this, I got this through the work that I did or whatever. No, you were born in America, and by God's grace, he has miraculously provided you food. It might come from a grocery store, but He has miraculously provided that for you. And so on two levels, I think it's important for us to give thanks when we eat if we aren't going to be gluttons. On one level, because when we do that, we are recognizing that we are actually considering the will of God in making that food choice. And if you can't say thank you, then you probably shouldn't be eating it. And second of all, because if we will learn to say thank you to God, then we will, we will recognize more fully how amazing the gifts are of God in our lives. That leads us to this next one, and there's, there's a few passages about this, but, but in Luke 3 we see the most clear statement. And this statement is said by John the Baptist, and it'll be easy after I read it to go, well, it's just John the Baptist, not Jesus. But keep two things in mind. First of all, John the Baptist was the man that Jesus called up until the time of Jesus, the greatest man ever to live. So I think his advice is pretty good. Second of all, John the Baptist was appointed by God to usher in Jesus. And so he was the herald for Jesus. And in this passage of Scripture, John is calling people to repentance so that they can prepare their hearts for the coming and the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. In Luke 3, 1, John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food 
should do the same. It's easy to go, well, that's a nice principle, John. That's great. But, I mean, how big of a deal is it? I mean, I don't share that often, you know. But, but how big of a deal can it be? Well, look at the other things he said. Uh, just in Luke 3, right after this, he's talking to people and he's talking about what it means to repent. And it's like the, in the same flow, the same conversation. He says this, Don't collect to the tax collectors. Don't collect any more than you are required to. And to the soldiers, he says, Don't exhort money and don't accuse people falsely, but be content with your pay. Now, none of us would have a problem with that, right? I mean, none of us would have a problem with stealing or lying being wrong. But it's so easy to go, well, come on, sharing? I mean, how can not sharing something be wrong? But for John, he's saying, look, if you want to prepare your heart for Jesus, then don't lie, don't steal, and share your clothing and your food. 1 John 3, 16-18 says this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. That's a pretty huge theological statement. It's something that you've heard me quote a lot. If you want to know what love is, don't look at the dictionary. Look at 1 John three sixteen, And it's really interesting to see what John follows it up with. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Wow, that's a call out. I mean, John is saying, I'm not sure that you can have the love of God in you if you can be a Christian, if you are not a person who shares material possessions with those in need. And I'm pretty sure that would include food, right? I mean, that's like, hey, here's what love is, and Jesus did it for you, and I'm not sure you can actually be connected to that if you are not a person who is sharing the things that you have. A study done by Reuters said this, Americans throw away nearly half their food every year, waste worth roughly $165 billion annually. Wow. That's crazy. Let me read this to you. As a country, we're essentially tossing away every other piece of food that crosses our path. That's money and precious resources down the drain, said somebody from the Natural Resource Defense Council. And you look at this, and you look at the food stats in our country, and it's crazy to think about the waste that we produce as Americans. And then you look at the stats about people that are hungry in our own country. In 2011, 50.1 million Americans lived in food insecure households, which means they're worried about the food that they're going to eat. 33.5 million adults and 16.7 million children. 8.8% of seniors living alone reported food insecurities. And 80% of Americans are Christians, according to them. And I look at this and I think, wow, if John's questioning whether or not we can really be Christians if we're not sharing, and I look and I see the staggering statistics about hunger in our country, in our own country, and we live in a country where we can go to the grocery store, right? In our own country, and I think 80% of those people are professing Christians. And I ask myself this, why am I not sharing more? I mean, why are we not sharing food? If John says one of the key things about showing that you're a true Christian is sharing your material possessions, then why are we not doing that? 
I notice this in the next Christianum, the coming of global Christianity. It's a book by Philip Jenkins. He says this. The grim fact of Christian impoverishment becomes all the more true as Africa assumes its place as the religion's principal center. And I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but Africa has become like the new spot for Christianity. And there's lots of books written about how Christianity is shrinking or dying or whatever, and it's just not true. These people who write these things are in European or or our country, and so they're looking at the state of Christianity in our country and and in Europe, and they're saying, well, it's shrinking. But if you look at other countries, a lot of the third world countries, especially in Africa, then you begin to see that Christianity is not dying. In fact, it's thriving and growing at great, amazing rates. He continues... We are dealing with a continent that has endured countless disasters since its independence, measured by statistics that become wearying by their unrelieved horror. Whether we are looking at life expectancy, child morality, or death from AIDS, Africa contributed less than 2% of the world's GDP, although it is home to 13% of the world population. And the GDP for the whole of sub-Saharan Africa is equivalent to that of the Netherlands. Since the 1960s, Africa's share of world trade has all but disappeared. Overall, the continent is slipping out of the third world into its own bleaky category of nth world. Matters are made infinitely worse by the unraveling of several African states, a process attended by unbelieving bloodshed. Knowing all this should ideally have have policy consequences, which are at least as urgent as redistributing church resources to meet the needs of shifting populations. Above all, the disastrous lot of so many Christians worldwide places urgent pressure on the wealthy societies to assist the poor. A quarter of a century ago, Ronald J. Sitter published the influential Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, which attacked first world hypocrisy in the face of the grinding poverty of the global south. The book easily could be republished today with the still more pointed title, Rich Christians in an Age of Hungry Christians. And the fact of religious kinship adds enormously to Sider's indictment. When American Christians see the images of starvation from Africa, like the hellish visions from Ethiopia in the 1980s, very few realize that the victims share not just a common humanity, but in many cases the same religion. Those are Christians starving to death. Matthew 25:31 through 45 it's a long passage says this when the son of man comes in glory and all the angels with him he will sit on his glorious throne all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world for i was hungry And you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger, needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Here's the simple truth. God has called us to be people as Christians who share. And one of the easiest and greatest ways that we can share is through our food. We are wasting half of our food every year while people are starving to death. And you spent money on that food. You say, well, I couldn't deliver this food to to that starving brother of mine in Africa. But you spent and I spent money on that food that could have provided for somebody that we will meet in heaven someday. Man, if we are not going to be gluttonous, if we are going to eat for God, if we are going to consider God when we eat, then we are going to have to step up and be people that share our food, and help our Christian brothers and sisters around the world. Twenty years ago, you could have turned a blind eye, right? You could have said, well, I don't know people in Africa, and I'll try to help some people here or whatever. But now, the Internet and the media, it's in front of us all the time. You've seen infomercial after infomercial, and what do you do? You go, well, that's too bad for them, too bad they weren't born in America. But those are Christians, and God is calling you to share your food. And so here, here's the deal. For us, if we're going to eat God's way, if we're going to actually conquer gluttony, then part of that is sharing. And I believe that we can conquer life, not just our own lives and our own spiritual lives, but we can actually save the lives of other Christians around the world who are waking up and trying to figure out where their food is coming. We can be the answer to other people's prayers. It'll be easy for me to just stand in front of you and say, you know, we're going to do this, this, and this. And and I hope that as a church, we'll be a church that serves more and more. And and we are looking right now. uh, This is kind of the next big step at our church is figuring out what are the needs that we can meet in this community. But I hope that you have just a more global vision of what it means to share. And you would be a person who wouldn't waste half your food. Who would say, I'm not going to waste this much food. I'm not going to spend in these crazy ways because I am going to share. And if we're going to eat like God, then then we need to eat in a way that respects our brothers and sisters and and doesn't cause them to sin. And we need to be people who pray and study the Word so our food is consecrated and we give thanks. And we need to be people who share. And and here's, here's what I'm asking for you this week, maybe just to get you in the habit. And we're trying to do something every week that, that's just a challenge for us. And, and this week, what, what I want from you is I just want you to give up a meal so that you can share food with somebody else. Now, that may mean that you're, just, you're going to take somebody out to dinner, or it may mean that you donate money somewhere, or whatever you need to do. But, but what I'm asking for you, as long as it's healthy for you, and, and as long as there won't, there won't be any repercussions for you physically or spiritually, I'm just asking that you will say, I'm, I'm not going to eat one time, one meal, one meal this week, so that I can share that food with somebody else. 
What I really hope is that, that as you share that food, you'll be able to share Jesus and the love of Jesus with that person. They may be Christians, maybe, and, and, and you would be able to just say, look, this is from God, and God loves you, and He's looking out for you, and you'd be an encouragement to them. Or it might be a non-Christian, you share the love of Jesus with them, but, but whatever you do, just remember that you're doing this for the glory of Jesus. And I know, you think about it, and you go, man, really giving up a meal? That's tough. And that's why we started with communion today, because as I, as I think about the blood of Jesus that he poured out for us and the body that he broke for us and the sacrifice that was, then it makes me question how serious I am about Jesus and how faithful I am to him if I go, I can't sacrifice a meal. I mean, I know that you poured out your blood and you let your body be beat up. And you, you suffered the most excruciating spiritual pain that ever has been known. I know you did that for me, but come on, a meal? I can't give that up. So I just pray that you would consider this week the love of Jesus. That you would consider how much he sacrificed for you and what he's called you to do. You would just give up one meal for the glory of him. And I hope more than that that it becomes the lifestyle of people in our church to just take a serious look at the food that we eat and say, is this what God wants from me? I mean, really, is, is this it? Should I be spinning this way? Should I be wasting this much? And you wouldn't just be a person who one time says, I'm going to give up a meal, but you would be a person who changes your eating habits so that we can share our food and show Jesus to this dying world and encourage those who know Jesus already, but they're struggling and probably questioning, why isn't God looking out for me? God is looking out for them because he's given you guys the resources and the abilities to share with them. And you're the one who's failing and sinning against them. I'm the one who's failing and sinning against them. And so we just we just do that once this week and, and pray about whether or not God wants you to change your life. And will you pray with me now? Lord, we confess. We've looked at starving children in Africa. Man, God, I, I hung out with a pastor from Kenya the other day and and he talked about their lack of resources, God, and I forgot about it within the week, Lord, maybe two. Father, I just, I just pray for myself and for my church, God, that you have called me to lead. And I, I just, I admit to you that we have been gluttonous when it comes to food and eating it, God, in the way that you want us to. Lord, we have been gluttonous, God, in, in considering and thinking about our fellow Christians, Lord, that love you like we do and will worship in eternity, God. It's, and we just, we've just forgotten about them or, or turned our eyes away from them, Lord. And, and you're, you're looking at us and saying, true Christians don't do that. And so we confess, God. I confess for us and for this church. And I pray, God, that in these moments, these individuals who call themselves your sons and your daughters are confessing to you in their own hearts, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would change us. God, I pray that, that you would just change us. Let us not be people, God, as Christians, that, that eat like everybody else, Lord. Let us not be people who waste half of our food. Let us not be people who feel the need to always have the nicest, best-tasting meal that we can possibly have, Lord. But let us consider, Lord, you. Let us remember the people, Lord, who need the food. Let us share, Lord. Father, let us share and, and let us care more importantly, Lord. And I pray that in every every food decision we make, God, it sounds so unrealistic saying it, and 
God, I think about the people listening, and it's like, really? I think that's what they're they're going to think or feel, but Lord, I still pray it. I know by your miraculous work it can happen. I pray that in every food decision we would consider your will, Lord. And God, if it's not something that's been consecrated by your word and prayer and we can't give thanksgiving for it, then we wouldn't eat it. And if it's not something, God, that... that if it is something, God, that's going to cause a brother or sister to sin, then we wouldn't eat it, Lord. And just we would glorify you in everything that we eat and, Lord, everything that we do. Lord, just just uh, make this a church, God. I, I mean, I, want, I wish every Christian in, in our country would, would wake up and, and fulfill the call to be real Christians, God, to live like real Christians. But, but God, I pray for our congregation that people would know that we don't waste half of our food, we don't waste half of our resources, God, because we we share them, because we we eat for you, we do everything for you. Pray these things in your name, Amen.